This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles, with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Well, the saints of Metro Bible greet you. We are... Joy and I are delighted to be here with you today. Consider it quite an honor to come. Our heart's passion, really, at Metro Bible is with seminary students. It's, um, it's been a growing passion over the years. We see uh, the purpose of the church as multifaceted, but the bookends are the preaching of God's word and pastoring of his people. And our mission, meaning our mission's statement, would be to help grow healthy churches, and train men to lead them. So we are just delighted to partner with you here today. I've known Charlie for a couple years, and uh, I'm praying for you students. Let's put it that way. <laughs> now, I had a chance to sit with Charlie a couple years ago on an ordination council, and it was a delight. Delight to be with the man who takes the sending out of God's men seriously. Amen? Isn't that exciting? I mean, it wasn't just about what this young man knew. It was about his character. It was about his passion. Uh, it, it was something that could not have been completed on a form, but uh, it, it was a good, healthy interrogation. Let's just put it that way. So if you will open your copy of the Word of God to Mark chapter 8. We're going to cover verses 27 through 38. We've already heard a great scripture reading this morning. You've heard of the great Puritan theologian Matthew Henry. Perhaps you even own his one-volume commentary. But there was a time when he was not famous. In fact, there was a time when he was quite unknown and his family was somewhat rejected. You see, his father was a minister of the Church of England and had been ejected under the uh, Act of Uniformity in 1662. And young Henry was in London at the time and fell in love with a British blue blood young woman who had money, and they wanted to be married, but as a commoner, Matthew realized that it would not have been a welcome sight. Nevertheless, she loved him. So she went to her father one day and asked if they could be wed. Her father's response was this, quote, he's got no background. You don't even know where he's from. And with all due respect, she responded, yes, I know. But I know where he's going, and I want to go with him. Not unlike the Great Commission, is it? Not unlike the call to discipleship. We know where he's going, and we want to go with him. Gen genuine faith follows Christ. It doesn't just believe in a set of facts, but it follows the path that he followed. But in order for us to be about the Great Commission, and I assume that that is why you're here, right? Right? Not only to preach it to yourself, 
but also to learn to preach to others. There's a couple things we need to understand. Number one, we need to understand who exactly is the object of our affection. And number two, what it may cost us to go with him. What it may cost us. Faith knows where he's going and wants to go with him. Well, you're going to recognize this text today. It's Peter's confession of faith. We're all familiar with it. Sadly, though, we oftentimes hear it preached out of context. And while there's some good jewels that come out of this, without the context, we miss quite a bit. Peter proclaims Christ rightly, but his confession is so much more than even he understands. It's beyond what he can grasp at the moment. See, he doesn't understand yet the road to the cross, nor does he understand the cost of discipleship. And it's imperative that the disciples, and by default us, understand these two things clearly in order for us to proclaim it rightly. So this text is going to focus heavily on the object of our faith and the nature of our faith. Let me say that again. Heavily on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, Jesus is Lord, and that path that we need to follow, the nature of our faith. In order for us to be about a mission of proclamation, which all Christians are called to, we must understand this rightly. I've got a timeless truth for our sermon if you want to write it down. And I know if you're in uh, uh, Dr. Holmes' homiletics, you will want to write it down, right? In order to proclaim him, one must confess him clearly and count the cost. Let me say it again. In order to proclaim him, one must confess him clearly and count the costs. Three points are going to guide our time in the text. Revelation about the person of Christ, number one. Revelation about the work of Christ, number two. And requirement to follow Christ, number three. Let's dive in. Revelation about the person of Christ. Mark eight twenty seven. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he was questioning his disciples. What was he asking them? Hey, what's the word out there on the street? Who do people say that I am? Who do people think that I am? And of course, how do his disciples respond? Well, some say John the Baptist, which sounds kind of crazy to us because John's dead at this time, right? But that was Herod's thought, right? I mean, it's like this guy seems and acts and, and talks a whole lot like John the Baptist, but I know I killed him with the blade. But maybe he's back. <laughs> Some say Elijah. They get that from Malachi 4 or 5, or an Elijah-type figure. Of course, we know Elijah was to precede the Messiah. Even the Jews hold a, a seat open for Elijah because he's supposed to be in connection with this, the, the Messiah. Others say one of the prophets... Many like today would say, well, Jesus is a good prophet or a good teacher. But then Jesus turns to them. And you can imagine him especially looking at Peter and with his fingers saying, who do you say that I am? Of course, Peter never lost for words, right? <laughs> you are the Christ. Matthew says, you are the son of the living God. I mean, Peter gets it. This, this fisherman that, that opens his mouth and puts his foot in gets this one right. You are literally the anointed one, the Amashiach, the long-expected king of Israel. 
And of course, with that Matthew passage, son of God, you realize the weight with which he put on that. Because no rabbi, no Jew understood that the Messiah would be God incarnate. And though Peter doesn't understand it completely, he understands that this Messiah, this Christ, is in fact God. Christ tells him in Matthew, he says, you didn't get this on your own, did you? But this has been revealed to you. If you'll remember, this is a heavy statement because this is exactly the reason the Apostle John says that they were going to kill Christ. Because he was saying he was a son of the Father and in doing so in the Jewish community, he was claiming to be equal with God and that was blasphemy. So there is divine revelation about the person of Jesus Christ. And the call to discipleship requires that we see him, not just as Savior, but as, say with me, Lord, right? Lord. He is the anointed one of God. He is God incarnate. So there is revelation about who this Galilean teacher is. But with that revelation, there's restriction. Look at verse 30. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Well, now that seems a bit confusing, doesn't it? I mean, imagine you're Peter. Hey, I... I mean, didn't I get the answer right? I mean, I mean, what do I win, right? I got the answer right. Don't I at least get to tell people? Christ says, no. Quiet. Do not tell anyone about it. Now, this is a bit confusing. And if you're just dropping in, I call it parachute preaching, into this text, you're not going to see it. But I like what Dr. Holmes did. He said, let's, let's give us the context If you're in real estate, the three most important rules of real estate are what? Location, location, location. If you plan on preaching, you better know context, context, context. All right? So let's see what the context is and the reason as to to why Christ says, don't tell anyone. Well, chapter 8, we also heard about it. Feeding of the 4,000. And they're crossing the lake. They forget their sack lunch. They're kind of worried about it. They think Christ is is, is scolding them for it. Look back at verse 17. Jesus says, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see, circle C, or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not, what, see? Having ears, do you not hear? Translation, you guys still don't get it. You still don't see Clearly, what's going on here, you're worried about forgetting you know, your lunch. There's something bigger going on here. And of course, right on the heels of the feeding of the 4,000, he heals a blind man in a two-stage healing, which seems a little unusual. A man who can't, what? See. And of course, he, he starts to heal him, and he says, can you see now? And the guy says, well, I can see men, but they look like, Trees walking around. I can't see very clearly. So Christ is saying, so you can't see clearly. Come here. And he heals him again. And then what does he say? Look at verse 26. Don't even think of entering the village. Meaning, be quiet. Don't tell anyone. Though you see, you still don't see clearly enough to proclaim who I am. Now we come to Peter. Peter sees. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, but he doesn't see clearly enough to proclaim Jesus rightly. Why? 
There's a lot of religions out there. There's a lot of denominations that say Jesus is Lord. But to get the person of Jesus Christ right and not the work is not to get Jesus right. And that brings us to our second point. Revelation about the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now Peter's really confused. Okay, hang on. I, I just got this right. You told me I was right. You are the Christ. You are the King. And now you're telling me you're going to Suffer and die? Now, I'm not the smartest fisherman in the boat here, but I'm pretty sure anointed ones, which that's where you get Messiah in the Old Testament. Kings were anointed ones, Messiahs, okay? Jesus was the ultimate Messiah. I'm pretty sure that those who are anointed by God and have successful reigns don't suffer and die. So I'm confused. And so you can sense his arrogance that he can't even smell. Psst, Jesus, come here, come here. Hey, puts his arm around him condescendingly. Hey, I know it's been a tough week. I know things aren't going great, but this, this, sounds, this sounds crazy. Don't talk like this. Christ, the king, is not going to suffer and die. And as far as this resurrection stuff, yeah, let's keep that to ourselves. I don't even understand that. I have no clue what you're talking about. The text says that Peter actually rebuked Jesus. So it's even stronger than I illustrate. He was, he, was, he was talking down to him. Of course, Christ looks around, and who does he see? He says he's, he sees the disciples. Meaning, teachable moment, and he rebukes Peter. And of course, what does he say? Get behind me. Get behind me, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. For you're not looking out for my interests or God's interests. You're looking out for your own interests. Verse 33. Now this sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There's another time that Jesus talked to Satan harshly like that in the wilderness. Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Let me ask us a question. Do we proclaim Jesus Christ as the Prince of Heaven who took our place dying on the cross, suffered a humiliating death, absorbed the wrath of God in order that mercy might be extended? Do we talk about such fantastic things as a bloody cross and a glorious resurrection, that which the world says were idiots, foolish resurrection? Does our gospel include both his lordship and his suffering? Or are we like so many student parachurch organizations where I'm just going to befriend this guy for six, nine months and then just kind of, kind of casually inter- introduce Jesus as my co-pilot, my friend? <laughs> or, or if I talk about the cross, it's going to be just kind of, you know, he died as a great example. Have we as believers, men and women, ambassadors of the Christ, have we lost a bloody cross? 
Are, are we content with saying He is the Christ, but not talking about His suffering and death and resurrection, which, by the way, is God's stamp of approval paid in full? Does our gospel include God, man, Christ? I hope so. But there's more. Because there's a response in that gospel, right? There's a cost to follow Christ. Look at our third point. The requirement to follow Christ. Verse 34, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples. He's bringing the crowd in now. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's talk just a minute about what the cross is and what it isn't. Because we use that term a lot, right? It's fine. My cross to bear. Ladies, a cross is not getting stuck with your mother's propensity for weight gain. <laughs> Men, it's not inheriting your dad's bad back. It's not your difficult work environment, a tyrannical supervisor, or even an obnoxious family member. It's not even illness or cancer, as difficult as that is. All of these things are real and difficult circumstances, but it's not the cross. You see, the cross is bearing the reproach for Jesus Christ. You have to remember, the, cr- the cross was not only developed as the most painful, cruel torture by the Phoenicians, or by which someone could live for days and days in writhing pain, but it was meant to be the most humiliating form of death. And so when Christ says, if anyone is willing to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his humiliation, his reproach, his embarrassment. Christ died naked, bloody, and mocked on the cross. And he calls his followers to be willing to do the same. No, bearing a cross is bearing the reproach that one bears for identifying with Christ. How do we identify with Christ? In word and in deed. Meaning that we speak the truth, Ephesians 4.15, in love. We talk about Christ and people hate us for it sometimes. Alright? And then we live for Christ. And that modeling is distasteful to a world. He said, well, what do you mean? First of all, I'm in no way giving license to be an obnoxious Christian. Okay? The guy that disciple me used to say, hey, Christians are not allowed to have spiritual B.O. Right? We can't smell bad. We shouldn't be weird. Christian normalized, Christianity normalizes things for us. We shouldn't not be able to segue into a conversation well. Okay? You don't hit people obnoxiously uh, with their sin who you haven't seen in a long time. Nevertheless, nevertheless, by our mirroring Christ's life, we will be mocked. Not going along with a lie in the workplace that makes everyone else a few extra dollars will cost you, right? Not affirming your friend's desire to live with his girlfriend because, hey, he loves her and they're planning on getting married. It's going to cost you, right? It's not just going to cost you in friendship. It's going to cost you in anger and vitriol. Why? Because you represent, though you don't realize it, the authority of the word of God. Because you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to bear a cross. Christ says, hey, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If anyone wishes to come after me, 
He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When was the last time you heard that at an invitation? And that's exactly the invitation Christ is giving. This is not, hey, let's do four more stanzas of just as I am. This is not, hey, the bustles will wait. This is not with every head bowed and every eye closed and, and a picture of, of a weeping Jesus and using a certain revelation verse way out of context. You know, this is Christ making an evangelistic invitation. And he says, if anyone to the crowd wants to follow me, here's your chance. And here's what it's going to cost you. I would gladly accept an invitation in our church if someone would use this. This is heavy. I was uh, really kicked to the curb with this text last week. I was just struggling. I was complaining. Uh, and I'm studying this, and I, and I didn't make the connection until about three days before I preached. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm not bearing a cross. And if I were, what am I getting in return? What has Christ already done? The genuine, genuine faith shows itself in gratitude. Jesus is basically saying, if you're not willing to say this, don't say anything. Peter, if you're not ready to say this and you're not, don't say anything. Bonhoeffer was right when he said salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. If you're like me, you probably have a tendency to think, yeah, but that's so first and second century. We don't deal with that today, right? I mean, when was the last time one of your buddies got martyred? When was the last time you just, someone even drew blood? We have a tendency to think that this is, this is gone and past, but can I give you some stats that say otherwise? Well, first of all, have you seen the news this morning? From 1833 to 1900, there were 14 million martyrs. From 1901 to 2000, there were 26 million martyrs. That's a conservative estimate. That's not taking into account everyone who just claims Christianity. 26 million martyrs. Open Doors estimates that each month, 180 Christians are martyred for the faith, and we are in the time of greatest peace in years, in decades. 41 out of the 50 worst countries killed by Islamic extremists this morning in Belgium. Both the airport and the rail station were hit by bombs. I can remember the time of the Iron Curtain. Nothing crossed over with regards to aggression since World War II into Western Europe. And now it's in their backyard. It's in our backyard if you consider us NATO. I mean, it's... 200 million Christians are at risk in 105 countries, making Christianity the most at-risk religion in the world. There's a target on your back, and it's really not about you. It's about Christ. By the way, what was the name given to those disciples at Antioch? Christians. Little Christ, and if understanding Christ as the Greek counterpart to Amashiach, it's Messianic people. Messianic people follow 
the path of the Messiah. That's a tall order. You feel the weight of it? But yet none of us can do it. None of us by our own bootstraps, our own integrity, our own fortitude or courage can do it unless we understand that the grace that saves us is the same grace that will change us and persevere us and one day will glorify us that we believe in monergistic salvation. That God is the author of our salvation and the perfecter of it. You don't have to worry about what you're going to say in that day because that grace that enlightened you, that caused the scales to fall from your eyes, opened your heart, gave you faith and repentance, is also the one that will carry you and strengthen you in that day. That's why Jesus can say, if anyone wishes to come after me. He's stating a certain fact for those who follow Christ. The Puritans called it perseverance of the saints. I trust you're studying it here. It's a great doctrine. Now this clearly doesn't mean that every Christian is going to suffer and die the same death as Christ or die at all. The operative phrase here is deny himself and take up his cross. John Stott explains it well. Cross-bearing as a follower of Jesus means nothing less than giving one's whole life over to follow him. What Christ is explaining here is really the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. A believer denies himself. An unbeliever lives for self. All of us lived for self. And when we come to Christ, we come to the foot of the cross, and there's a transfer of allegiance from serving self to serving Christ. Not perfectly, but progressively. And what Christ is going to do here is he's actually going to take this hard saying, this deny himself and take up his cross, and he's going to give us four explanation clauses to encourage those listening, to encourage those who are following. And they all start with four. Look at Mark 8.35. He starts to explain it. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake... And for the Gospels, we'll save it. This is where Jim Elliot got his wonderful saying, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The very thing that seems impossible, coming and losing our life in Christ, is actually not losing anything. It's, it's gaining everything. Paul talks about it in Philippians 3, right? I consider all the things that I did, all of my accomplishments, all of my ladder climbing, rubbish! In order that I may gain Christ. And then he goes on to say, And my whole purpose for living is that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering, that I may be conformed to His image, that I may know Jesus. When we live for self, we climb as high as we can go, and then guess what? We have to protect all that we have. And we don't live our life. Our life is lived by shackles. We don't own ourselves, it owns us. Christ's first explanation here is, is you're losing your life for my sake, you're going to save it. And I don't think this means just for eternity. I think this means in the here and now. Verse 36 takes it a step further. For, explanation, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, we get this when we... We stop and think. 
You know, I, I don't know about you, but this will sound really strange. You might want to cut this out of the tape, but I like to preach funerals far more than weddings. You know? I mean, I mean, first of all, in weddings, I'm behind a beautiful bride. No one wants to see me, right? Okay. <laughs> Everyone's just staring at this, you know, $2,000 dress and wondering what they get to eat and drink in a few minutes, all right? A funeral? I got a captive audience. That person's not in front of me. That person's lying here dead. Everyone is thinking the same question. When's it going to happen to me? Where are they now? I get a captive audience and I get to press in on them and I get to say, all of you had to make it here today. All of you had to rearrange things. God is giving you a chance to pause. He's giving you a chance to examine yourself. Where are you going to be? Moses says we got 70 if by strength, 80 years, right? Psalmist says that we're but a vapor that appears for a while. I mean, think about your morning coffee, okay? Just that little bit of steam that just, poof, it's gone. That in light of eternity, we are like that steam. Who in their right mind would trade eternity for a little bit of steam off your latte? Think about the richest man you know. Think what happens when he dies or when you're at his funeral. Oh, you know, you miss him a little bit, but there's another question going through everyone's mind. How much did he leave? And if the preacher's smart, he's going to say he left everything. And he traded his soul for it if he wasn't a Christian. Kent Hughes relates a story that sounds like it's right out of Indiana Jones. In 1000 AD, Emperor Otho had his men open the crypt of the great Charlemagne who had died 126 years earlier in 814 A.D. Imagine the crowbars. Now they knew some of what they would see, and as they opened it, and that light shone in there, they saw treasures. But what they saw next, they would not have been prepared for. For in the center of all these treasures was the king sitting on his throne. Nothing left but a skeleton with his crown on his head. But as they drew nearer, they saw something sitting in his lap. It was the Gospels in Latin. And his finger was pointed to, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Even in death, Charlemagne was preaching, wasn't he? I want to take just a moment because this is a seminary and I can. <laughs> and I want to address the resurgence of cheap grace within evangelicalism. Okay. Pops up every few years. It's like, it's like men's fashions, you know. It's like skinny ties are back, right? You know, and it may have a little bit different color, a little bit different flavor, but it's the same old heresy. All right. And the basic lie that promoted is this. You can believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but nothing is required of you. Have you heard those sermons? Been part of those churches? Yeah. Tell them to read James, 2 Peter, uh, 1 and 2 John. I could just keep going. Now, I get the sophomoric fear that we don't want to do anything that would infringe upon the grace of Jesus Christ, or that we're saved by grace through faith, or faith alone. I get that. I get that fear. 
But the fact is, as I said earlier, the grace that saves us is the same grace that will change us. Repentance and faith are gifts. Gifts from God, not something we work up in ourselves. As a result, repentance in sanctification is also a daily gift from God. And so when Christ says, if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He's not denying grace. He's not saying that you need to add works to salvation. He's talking about a total commitment that only genuine faith can give. And that commitment, when it is acted out, is by the grace of God. I mean, let's be honest, we don't understand the level of that commitment. You know, James, when he's fishing with Peter, he didn't understand when Christ said, follow me, and he drops his nets. He didn't know that he was going to die at the blade of Herod. But in that day, grace gave him the ability to not deny Christ. There's one more four that drives it all home. Verse 38, and this is the toughest one. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And I just got to ask us the question, and I want to be as plain as I can be, are you embarrassed about Jesus? Does this kind of Christianity, this denying self, losing one's life, suffering, carrying the reproach of a criminal, do you find yourself embarrassed in the workplace, embarrassed with your, and I'm going to press us, with our family? The people that know us best because they know our junk. Do we have a tendency to trim our sails? Or do we give a robust gospel? Because we find ourselves embarrassed. Christ is basically saying this makes no sense. If anyone should have been embarrassed, it would have been the king of kings over us. And yet he purchased a bride and he's making her spotless day by day. Christ doesn't call us to get, he calls us to give it up. And when we lose our life in him, we also find it. And we know where he's going, and we want to go with him, right? Well, let's apply it. We got five? This text is about proclamation. Boy, when you look at it in its context, Peter, you got it right. You don't see clearly. I need you to hold off. If we're going to proclaim the truth, and all of us as disciples of Jesus Christ are called to be ambassadors, and are called, there's a phrase we use, to make disciple-making disciples. It can't end with us. It really can't end with the next guy. Your job is to produce spiritual grandchildren. If we're going to do that, we've got to understand it. And that's hard. Because none of us like pain. But in order to understand it, we have to immerse ourselves in the Word. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say it this way, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So I would say, first application is we've got to preach this to ourselves first. Okay, We've got to preach who Jesus really is. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've got to preach what he really did. That he, he didn't just die for us on the cross to pay our sins. You know, and I get that. He absorbed the righteous wrath of God in order that mercy might be extended. This is why we believe in a triune God. 
Allah cannot fulfill this. He is a respecter of persons. When you stand before him theoretically on that day, after you've killed your X number of people, and you say, well, I've done more good than bad. I mean, he's not a holy God because he's willing to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. Do you realize that what we have at the intersection of the cross is the greatest intersection of love and justice ever? That our triune God would not compromise holiness or justice and yet desire to have a relationship with its unfaithful creation. I would go so far as to say it's treasonous creation. But in order to do so, justice had to be satisfied. And on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied and mercy was extended. So we have to understand the atonement. And I love what Sproul says. He goes, I've been studying the atonement for 50 years. I feel like I'm just playing on a seashore in the ocean. But we've got to strive to understand it and proclaim it rightly. Number three, we've got to understand what we're called to do. And there's a phrase I've been using lately, and I just want to be transparent with you guys. It's embracing a ministry of obscurity. Because when I look at what it means to deny oneself and follow me, it, it's not bootstrapping it under suffering. It's not gutting up. It's denying oneself is, is losing your life in Christ. And it's, it's embracing a ministry of obscurity. That you're just a seed sower. And God's not going to share his glory. And as a result, you're going to take some hits. And it's probably going to cost you in reputation. I just had a dear friend of mine, one of the guys that trained me, Uh, His reputation is shot now, and he did everything right with regards to ministering to a a single woman who was going through some tough times. Everything right, completely above reproach, and she's destroyed his reputation now. But God's going to use it. In order to proclaim him, we must confess him clearly and count the cost. The second application is once we preach to ourselves, then we've got to have it spill over and preach to others. Amen? Right? I mean, that's why we're here. And when I say preach it, I mean from the pulpit to the pew to the workplace to wherever. That the word of God reverberates back and forth. And once we understand the true cost of discipleship, think about how freeing life can be. Think about how bold you can become. If to live as Christ and to die is gain, you don't give a flip about your reputation. You can care less about what people really think. You have nothing to fear because guess what? Eternity awaits you. 70 if by strength, 80 years, and the way I'm eating, I'm never going to make it to 70, okay? We got heaven, eternity. Think of the boldness with which we can witness about Christ. And think about the energy that we can now take from building our own castles on foundations of sand to building it on something that lasts. Think about how alive the Word of God can be 